0: In Colossians chapter 4, as so we go through the book of Colossians, covering some of those verses that Jed went over, you can probably just skip right to page 10, um, but I'm not going to do that because there's so much good stuff here. So, turn to Colossians chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 2, please listen carefully This is God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this wonderful book that speaks of the supremacy of Christ. We come this morning as people who speak, people who speak words of blessing and words of condemnation. Words of love and words of anger, words of joy and words of anguish, words of hope and words of despair. Our mouths reveal what's in our hearts, and we have serious heart problems. So this morning we come to you realizing that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Open your word to us now, and we may find in it fountains of blessing. For this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray amen. We are closing out an election cycle now. I know some of you love the political season. And uh, in every election cycle that I can recall, uh, the talking heads on television news have discussed negative campaign ads and harsh rhetoric. And even before the Biden-Ryan sparring match and the more antagonistic tone of the Last few Obama-Romney exchanges, uh, Dan Rather had already dubbed this election season the worst. In reality, though, it probably isn't. In the John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson election of 1800, then president, this was just one I got out of dozens, leading me to believe that today's just amateurs when it comes to campaign rhetoric but in the Adams Jefferson election of 1800 then president Adams camp called Jefferson an atheist a libertine and a coward and they stumped with the claim that the election offered a choice between God and a religious president or Jefferson and no God as if electing Jefferson would make God disappear somehow and the rumor that was spread was that Jefferson would gather and burn all the Bibles upon his inauguration. In response, then Vice President Jefferson, the only time in U.S. history that a sitting president and vice president ran against each other, countered in kind Jefferson's surrogates blasted Adams for his, it's going to be hard to pronounce, hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. And the amazing thing is these two were friends before the election, and after the election, they became friends again. And there's, there's a ton more examples that, be, that can be given, but this illustrates that mudslinging and temper tantrums are anything but novel in political campaigns. And sadly, the politicians may have learned it from the clergy, uh, in the American colonies. Some of the worst anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic language sounded forth from the pulpits and it went far beyond insensitive. It was crude, inflammatory, and wicked in many cases. Uh, people will called call the, the Whore of Babylon Christ killers and the Antichrist. Some of many negative descriptions used from the pulpits, which had the effect to poison minds and prejudice hearts. So what's the point? to all of this it certainly isn't to minimize or excuse the blood sport that american political campaigns have uh, turned into it's simply to put what is happening into a historical perspective and it's also to say that politics isn't the only sphere of life where verbal bravado has become reckless and detrimental and as i thought about this this whole passage is about our speech And I thought it's time for us all to take a step back, take a deep breath. Look at the politicians and the preachers, family members and friends, co-workers and strangers through more respectful eyes. That we need to stop trying to one-up everybody with snappy, if also insulting and demeaning one-liners. The idea to strive for civility over disrespect. And I think that's a worthy goal for us, uh, all of us, to embrace. And you may turn to the uh, parallel passage for our text this morning. We'll be looking at Colossians 4, but in the parallel in Ephesians 4, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And our passage, of course, says something similar in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I think one of the biggest issues we have in the Christian life is how we speak. As I wrote to you earlier this week, those that you get, get the uh, church newsletter, the scriptures say that our tongues have the power of life and death, to heal and to wound. And this is one area that I think everybody struggles with. Everyone has said things that they wish they could take back. Corrupting talk, as Ephesians puts it. We've all had words Said words that utterly lack grace. And of course, since I was preaching on this, uh, I was struggling with this all week. So many times, catching myself about to say something that just wasn't graceful. Hopefully, more times than not, I kept my mouth shut, but not always. And on the flip side, everyone has wished that they said something when they had the opportunity, but kept quiet and then the opportunity was lost. We're told to Exercise wisdom and speak graciously, particularly to outsiders, meaning those outside the church. Sound counsel, but easier said than done. Never underestimate the power of words. A judge says a few words and a man's life is saved or condemned. A doctor says a few words and a patient either rejoices or despairs. And whether the communication is oral or written, there's great power in words. And the power of speech is a gift from God and it needs to be used the way God ordains it. uh, In the book of James chapter 3 the tongue is compared to a bridle and a rudder a, a fire and a poisonous animal, a fruitful tree and a fountain. And these word pictures teach us the tongue has the power to direct, the power to destroy and the power to delight. The tongue is little but it can accomplish great things both for good and for evil. And so in this brief passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three distinct types of speech. And so we're going to take those one at a time and try to figure out what difference they make. So let's see what he says. Turn with me again to Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 2, where he writes about speaking with God. Speaking with God. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So speaking with God is simply another way of talking about prayer. And this text gives us guidelines, very much going along the line of uh, what Jed uh, led us through a little bit ago. Uh, Guidelines for prayer that we need to hear. First it tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer. There's a lot of power to be had in persevering prayer. I'm reminded of the uh, persistent friend of Jesus' story in Luke 11 when he says, I tell you that we will not uh, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, or as uh, some translations have it, his persistence, he will rise and give him what he needs. And equally important, in Luke 18, Jesus told us we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So perseverance in prayer is the great test of genuineness in the Christian life. And I praise God for those among us who have persevered in prayer for 20 years, for 40 years, for 60 years. The great desire of the session, as Jed mentioned, is that we would be a praying people and a praying church. And so let this year be saturated with prayer to the Lord as we just sung as all-powerful and all-good. Second, we're told to be watchful in our prayers. It means be alert, be mentally awake. Uh, Paul may have learned this from the story of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked the disciples to pray but found them sleeping. And in Mark 14, he says, He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We must be on watch as we pray. On watch against wandering minds, vain repetitions, meaningless expressions, limited selfish desires. We also have to watch for what is good. And we should especially be alert, I think, to God's guidance uh, of our prayers in the scriptures. Uh, You should be praying about what you're reading about in the scriptures. And I had an example of that uh, this morning. God is the one who works in us the desire and will to pray. But we always experience that divine enabling as our own uh, resolve and decision. And most often in response to reading his Word. So we need to connect those things uh, as well. Uh, pray about what you're reading about in God's word. Third, he says, be thankful in all your prayers. You know, the stories of what God has done in so many lives, even within this congregation, through renewed prayer are amazing. They encourage me not to quit praying because that's the easiest thing to do when it comes to prayer. The easiest thing is to quit. And so keep sharing. Uh, Those stories of how God has answered your prayers, how God has uh, worked in your life, what God is actually doing in your life, is tremendously encouraging to the rest of us. Each month, the session meets for prayer, and we send out an email asking for your prayer requests. And uh, towards the end of the email, we additionally ask, is there anything in your life that we can thank God for as well? But only one or two of you respond to that. It's easy to forget to thank God for what he's already done. Now, if we follow Paul's example, we'll never overlook this monumental uh, importance of praying for each other and praying for others. If we learn to pray with Paul, we'll learn to pray for others. We'll see it's part of our job to approach God with thanksgiving for others and with our intercession uh, for them. In short, our praying will be shaped by our desire to seek what is best for the people of God. Now, that idea of seeking what is best uh, for the people of God has two corollaries. The first one is uh, God defines what is best, not me, not you. And that's hard because we think we know what's best for other people. And yet God is the one who defines that. It means it's vitally important for us to listen to the prayers of Scripture. How else are we going to know what God judges to be best for us? As Scripture informs our beliefs about uh, God and our dealings with others and our fundamental values, it needs to shape our praying as well. In particular, I've observed that, one, how often Paul prays for others. It's constant uh, in his letters. And then you need to sort of read through those prayers, not just to see that he does it a lot, but see exactly what it is that he is asking God for on these other people's behalf. And then compare the results with what we normally ask God for. Paul prays for their faith, their love, their hope, their joy, their peace, their strength and encouragement. And most of us don't pray like that. When we do pray, we tend to pray for immediate concerns and situations Those things aren't bad. It's not wrong to pray for them. But do our prayers ever move beyond them to pray for the big things like faith, hope, and love? Second, praying for others demands that we examine our own hearts. You can't pray for somebody you're mad at. That's really hard. It's hard to effectively pray for someone that you have kept a resentment towards. And... The hindrance is not just psychological, as if the problem were just sheer difficulty bringing ourselves to pray for those towards whom we feel bitter. That is a real barrier, but how often have you prayed for somebody that you resent? There's a much deeper barrier here. God himself declares that unconfessed sin will cut us off from communication with him and from his answers. Isaiah 59 says... Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The sins that cut us off from effective prayer it can be a whole bunch. The, the whole book of Malachi is addressing uh, the sins of those people And uh, being condemned by Malachi and basically saying, God is not going to respond to you if you don't deal with this sin. Such things as a half-hearted religion that gives God second best. Well, I think that's still true. Talks about meaningless tears of repentance while adultery and divorce abound. The abysmal absence of the fear of God that results in the oppression of the poor and the unfortunate. And a pursuit after the ways of the world. You could be writing about Loudoun County, the arrogant, rich, and evildoers of society, and this whispered suspicion that serving God is futile. Small wonder that God's not moved by the prayers of his people if those descriptions describe us. But most often, what cuts us off from effective prayer? is sheer bitterness or nurturing resentment or preserving our grudges, this desperate lack of forgiveness. It's pitiful and pitifully common among us. We need to be reminded that Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew 6, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Indeed, if we've experienced anything of the Father's forgiveness, then His mercy has to become the standard for our mercy. We read a few weeks ago in Colossians 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And when we went through that passage, I told you the goal is not to treat others the way they've treated us, but to treat others the way Jesus has treated us. And if you're serious about reforming, changing, growing your prayer life, you have to begin with your heart. Unconfessed sin, nurtured sin, will always be a barrier between God and God and those he's made in his image. And not only will it make it hard to speak with God, but it'll make it even harder for us to be speaking the words of God. Speaking the words of God. That's the second blank in your outline. Look at verse 3 with me. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here we read that Paul is asking the Colossians and us to pray that a door would be opened for the word. That door needs to be opened in two senses, uh, that there be open receptive hearts uh, in our church from week to week, and also that your friends and neighbors would be open to the gospel as you share it. And we get a glimpse of that in the book of Acts, in the story of Lydia, where it tells us one who hurt us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We need to pray that God keeps doing that. God opens hearts, both among us, but also in the world that we live in, in our neighborhoods, in a workplace. This is what we should be praying would happen every Sunday morning, but also through the week. And finally, Paul asked for prayer for his preaching of God's word, and by implication, asking us to pray for whoever is preaching God's word. In our church, that means you should be praying for me two thirds of the time. We have several pastors and gifted elders, along with the occasional guest preacher. Altogether, they preach about one third of the time, and then I preach the other two thirds. So please pray. It's a wonderful calling to proclaim God's word. I love to preach. I love the preaching office. I love to teach the art and craft of preaching to future preachers. But I'll be the first to tell you, it is way above me. I and every other preaching pastor needs your prayers. That we understand the mystery of Christ, that we choose needed texts, that we preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we speak the truth in love. Without Christ, we can do nothing. So pray for the preachers of our church that they may make the mystery of Christ clear. Paul not only wrote about preaching, he practiced it. Luke describes it this way in Acts 28. From morning till evening. You think my sermons are long. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. However, Paul's very aware that the power that made his ministry effective is not his own. And Paul saturated his ministry with prayer. The openings of his letters give a a, a glimpse of how often and how urgently he prayed for the churches. Uh, that he planted and that he pastored he knew that even spirit-given words true as they were could only be carried into the listener's heart by the spirit of god himself and knowing his own temptations to timidity paul begged his brothers and sisters to pray for him both for the opportunities to speak and for the boldness to seize those opportunities as god presented them we see it again in ephesians 6 where he writes Uh, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains so that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Preachers who realize their own desperate need will saturate their ministry of the word with prayer. Prayer for their people, prayer for themselves, prayer uh, for each other. And will constantly seek the support through the prayers of their people. But Paul's not done with this yet because he not only wants us to speak with God about people, but he also wants us to speak with people about God. So we've had speaking with God about people And now he transitions to speaking with people about God. So look at verse 5, speaking about God. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, outsiders refers to those who are outside the family of God. Jesus made a distinction between his disciples and those who were outside in Mark 4. He said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Apostle Paul made the same distinction in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside." However, as Christians, it's easy for us to have, and we should never have, but it's easy for us to have this sort of sanctified superiority complex. We actually have a responsibility to share the gospel with those around us and to seek to bring them into God's family. To begin with, we have a responsibility to walk in wisdom. Walk refers, of course, to our conduct in daily life. Because the unsaved outsiders are watching us. And they're very critical of us. And there shouldn't be things in our life that would jeopardize people hearing our words. We'll talk about your walk and your talk needs to match. And that's a a cliche, but it's very true. If how you live doesn't match your words, people will not listen. So what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Wisdom. For one thing, it means we need to be careful not to say or do anything that makes it difficult to share the gospel. It means we have to be alert to use the opportunities that God gives us to tell others about Jesus. Making the best use of time, or as it's translated in other versions, redeeming the time, means buying up the opportunity. It's actually a commercial term, and it pictures the Christian as a faithful steward who knows an opportunity when he sees one just as a wise homemaker seizes a bargain when she finds one. So Christians seize the opportunity to talk about spiritual things with others. Now walking in wisdom also includes doing our work and paying our bills and keeping our promises. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I was thinking about that. You know how many non-Christian merchants hate doing business with church people. Tons. We have a terrible reputation among others. When my brother-in-law was alive, he owned a small business, and I heard him repeatedly say that the members of the church were the worst people to do business with. It got so bad, and they owed him so much money, he finally went to the church council to plead for help, and they intervened. And most of the people, but not all, paid what they owed but all of them stopped being his friend and he eventually left that church. Christians in general, and, and leaders in particular, are supposed to have a good reputation in the community. First Timothy 3, speaking about choosing elders, says he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's not enough simply to walk wisely and carefully before unbelievers. We also have to talk with them and share the gospel with them, which is why it's so important that the walking and the talking match up, that our speech is controlled by grace, as it says in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Jesus spoke with grace on his lips. Luke 4. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now, if you remember what Jesus said, he often dealt with sin. But in so doing, he spoke words of grace. And our speech is supposed to be gracious as well. But it can't be gracious if we have no grace in our hearts. Ephesians 4 reminds us, speaking the truth in love, were to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love is God's ideal for our conversation. And then Paul added this little phrase called seasoned with salt. And that day, salt was used as a preservative as well as a seasoner. And according to Leviticus chapter 2, salt was added to the sacrifices. Perhaps Paul is suggesting as we, that we look on our words as sacrifices offered to God. He already tells us in Hebrews that uh, words of praise are spiritual sacrifices. So you not just have to say the right words. We need to say them in the right manner if we remember that our words are looked on as sacrifices to God. It's truly unfortunate when a Christian is rude, particularly when others are listening. We know that love is not rude. And so rudeness on our part is simply being unloving. Our words are supposed to be seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Similar to 1 Peter 3, which says, in your hearts honor Christ, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, uh, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. Respect is the opposite of arrogance. There's no place in a Christian's conversation for a know-it-all attitude. And while we need to have convictions and we need not compromise, we have to cultivate a gracious spirit. Again, our walk and our talk have to be in harmony with each other because nothing is going to silence you more than a careless life. When character, conduct, and conversation are worked together, it makes for a powerful witness to the grace of the gospel. But one of the sad things about the church today is sometimes we save that powerful witness to the grace of the gospel for those who are outside the church and seem to forget about those inside. Now, most of us, by and large, think the church is a nice place. There's fellowship, friendship, and a reasonably safe haven from the pressures of the tense relationships, both at work and at home. And yes, most of the time, the church is a nice place, were it not for one thing. Some of the people who belong are, at times, simply unbearable. If we could enjoy church without the people somehow have all the benefits of corporate worship without all the problems of the people. Of course, we're not thinking of all the people. Some of them are all right. But it would surely be a more wonderful place if some of them would get transferred to Australia. And as soon as we articulate those resentments so foolishly, we're forced to acknowledge our own self-righteousness. And then the celebrated line from the old Pogo comic strip, pops up, we have met the enemy, and he is us. The fact of the matter is the church is people. It's not a building, it's people. And all of us are fallen people. Forgiven, yes, somewhere on the path uh, of sanctification, but we're a long way off from the perfection that will characterize the new heaven and the new earth. The church, in short, is us. And that can be both wonderful and awful. Christian woman recently posted this as her Facebook status. I'm finally starting to understand what the Bible says when, uh, when it says that we will be persecuted for what we believe. I always thought it meant our enemies. It hurts worse because it ends up being our friends. One reality is very few Christians in the United States experience the persecution of the sort that Jesus warned us to expect. Persecution by an unbelieving and hostile world. It may well come in the future, and we'd be wise to expect it, but it hasn't happened yet. Second reality is that the only persecution many Christians uh, have ever known is persecution by fellow believers. And I'm not referring to persecution of uh, Protestants by Catholics or vice versa or of conservatives by liberals. I'm talking about what conservative evangelicals Perhaps even confessional Presbyterians experience among themselves, and a the third reality is those experience pers- uh, those receiving uh, the persecution almost always perceive themselves as sincerely serving God, and those who are doing the persecution almost always perceive themselves as serving the cause of truth and righteousness. And some of the most acute and chronic relational hurts. Christians will experience come within the believing community. The analogy of the family will help. We get explanation and understanding of our relationships within marriages and within families. Family members can find that the greatest joys and greatest pains can be experienced within the family. Husband and wives know that joy and pain can come from the same person. And within the same family, we can experience loyalty and betrayal, understanding and indifference, support and abandonment. And to put it succinctly, both love and hatred can be experienced within a marriage and within a family. Now, some are more dysfunctional than others, but the potential for hurt is universal. Now, as a minister, I've experienced persecution by Christians, including some coming from friends. And I expect that over the course of the years... There are those, including some of those that I think persecuted me, who feel that I persecuted them. Isn't this persecution of believers by believers, to put it mildly, a problem? But what do we do with it? To quote Jeff Bridges singing his bad Blake, I don't know. How do you even pray on either side of the persecuting? I wish somehow we could do more provoking of one another to love and good deeds and less persecuting one another for the supposed good of the kingdom. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a well-known author, minister in Reformed circles, wrote a helpful piece of addressing the case of Christians who engage in the contradiction of saying they love Jesus but don't love his church. He writes words every pastor would like to share with his people. He notes that most Christians say they love their church, particularly those of their own congregation. But goes on, there's exceptions, perhaps here, certainly elsewhere. And people say, how can I be expected to love my church when all these things are happening and going wrong and failing badly? And he says, when friends do that, the best thing to do is raise one eyebrow and ask, really? What about the fellowship fallout at Rome, the moral problems in Corinth, the confusion in Galatia? the disagreement among the women in uh, Philippi, the misunderstanding of the Christian life, and Colossae, the difficulties in Thessalonica. These were the churches that Paul loved because these were the churches that Jesus loved. And that's why it's such a contradiction in terms to be a Christian who doesn't love the church. And it makes the failures of a church a reason for distancing himself from the basic life and discipline of Jesus' family. Distancing themselves from uh, worship, ministry of the word, the fellowship, the Lord's table, communion of the saints, corporate prayer. These aren't hypotheticals. These are all real cases. And we probably know people who that's happened to. It may have happened with some of us. And some of those who experience these things just drop out. These things usually involve being spoken to ungraciously and words laced with pepper rather than seasoned with salt. And for the present, they just can't deal with it. It's one of those cases where one is faced with what what one should do and what can do and what one feels and what one knows and just simply concludes, I just can't do it. I can't go to church, not now. We see it in their faces and hear it in their stories. And should these Christians love the church no matter what? Just because Jesus loves both that Christian and that church despite the woeful failures of both? Yes. But that doesn't diminish the need of congregations and elders and deacons and pastors to man up and pastor and take care and shepherd their people. Perhaps you've been hurt in the church. Perhaps you no longer know what it means for the church to love you. After all, people can be so rude. We snatch parking places. We forget names. We interrupt. We fail to show up. You could probably use some courtesy. Has it been a while since somebody pulled out your chair? Then let Jesus do that. Don't hurry through this thought. Receive the courtesy of Christ. He's your groom. Doesn't the groom cherish the bride, respect the bride, honor the bride? Let Christ do what he longs to do. For as you receive his love, you'll find it easier to give yours. And as you reflect on his courtesy to you, you'll be more likely to offer the same. Do you ever notice the first five letters of the word courtesy are, are, are courteous, Spell court? In old England, to be courteous was to act in the way of the court. The family and the servants of the king, part of the king's court, were expected to follow a higher standard. Well, aren't we, family and servants of the king, aren't we called to represent the king, to represent Jesus? Those who don't believe in Jesus know what we do. They make decisions about Christ by watching us. When we're kind, they assume Christ is kind. And when we're gracious, they assume Christ is gracious. But if we're brash and harsh, uh, what will people think about our king? If we're dishonest and deceptive, what assumptions will an observer make about our master? Courteous conduct honors Christ. It also honors his children. When you surrender a parking space to someone, you honor him. When you return a borrowed book, you honor the lender. When you make an effort to greet everyone in the room, especially the one that everyone else has overlooked, you honor God's children. Loving the church as a whole is hard. Loving the church one person at a time is even harder, which makes Jesus' love for her all the more astounding. Think about how much he loves you.